literally, we had a minister of health sending us pictures of people who were, had passed away, literally saying, hey, like, it's time for you guys to get this done because you know, there are people dying and these are some of the people. And there is nothing that focuses a team, rallies the team around what actually matters and what you can actually cut than that connection to a customer. Welcome to Speed, a show about leaders who move fast. I'm your host, Peregrine Badger, on the team at 50 Years, a venture capital firm backing founders using technology to solve the world's biggest problems. We back founders working on climate change, health, free speech, affordable housing, and other global issues. These problems demand urgency. Shipping faster means saving lives, preventing extinctions, and creating a future worth living. We interview leaders who move fast and ask them what they did and how they did it with the goal of bringing their strategies and tactics to bear on the world's biggest problems. This is Speed. Today, we're chatting with Keenan Virobeck, the co-founder and CTO of Zipline, a company that delivers life-saving medical supplies to people around the world. Keenan and his co-founders, Keller and Ryan, started Zipline in 2014, identified some key problems in medical logistics, and after literally hundreds of prototypes, deployed the first production version of Zipline in Rwanda in 2016. Since then, they've made hundreds of thousands of medical deliveries and saved tens of thousands of lives. They've overcome some extreme challenges, ranging from flying in storms to catching drones out of the sky using fishing poles. Keenan, welcome to Speed. Great to be here. I'd love to hear a little bit about the early story of Zipline and your story leading up to that. Yeah, so my career started in medical robotics and medical devices, and I went from that into a, sort of a valley of disillusionment around like what that could mean for the world and ended up going m- way, way deep on the product design side of that uh, world. And, and then in grad school, stumbled on a project that became sort of really impactful in, in open source and robotics called Ross. Spent seven years of my life building that, funding that, getting that off the ground, created a foundation to oversee Ross, uh, a robot operating system. And yeah, and then took some time to really figure out what I wanted to do next and knew I wanted something with a lot of impact, knew I wanted something that could really scale because I'd found sort of one but not the other and the other without the other. I wanted to find the right co-founder. I think at that point in my career, I knew myself well enough to know what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. I needed to find the right partners for this adventure. And along that journey, I met my co-founders for Zipline, Keller and Ryan. And we, yeah, we really hit it off and explored a bunch of different things together, uh, including Zipline. My wife's an epidemiologist. Keller's family is in public health as well. And they kept nudging us of like, hey, you know, Amazon's talking about drone delivery, but like in the world of health, we keep hearing about these big health intervention campaigns that just get stuck on logistics. You know, maybe drones can solve that problem. And so we dug into that. I fully expected to learn a thousand reasons why that would never work, right? I thought no supply, no willingness to pay, no willingness to adopt and change their supply chains. And, and uh, but the more we spent out in the world and uh, at the time, Costa Rica and Tanzania, it actually went the opposite direction. It just became clear that the supply was there. The, the intense political pressure to solve this problem was there. The, the willingness to, to hire us as a, as a you know, startup with a sketch deck was there. And then the rest is history. And so what was that early process like? Like you met Keller and Ryan, was it? Yeah, I, I knew I was looking for the right co-founders. They actually had another startup going at the time. It was doing these little iPhone dock robots that you could like program as a kid and stuff. And they were sort of deciding, hey, should, we, should, they, should they make it into a consumer electronics brand or should they sort of pivot to do something more impactful? You know, we got introduced through a mutual friend and started exploring some of these other uh, things that we thought could be really impactful, including this. And uh, it was actually in front of the, the Minister of Health. Uh, so, so in Costa Rica, they have a public health system. And through a connection, we got uh, an opportunity to pitch the executive board of this health system. So picture 
the executive boardroom, like a U-shaped table. Everybody's got a microphone. Everybody's wearing suits. And Keller brushed up on his Spanish. And in Spanish, with two weeks head, head, head start, had that whole group wrapped, wrapped around his finger around this vision for how to solve some really big challenges they had serving uh, their indigenous population from a pharmacy and, and healthcare point of view. And that, that was the moment where I was like, all right, I, I thought this guy had some talent, but this is amazing. This is, this is everything I'm looking for in a co-founder in terms of an ability to really bring people along for really um, aggressive vision. And, and Ryan, similarly on the, on the product and technology side, just a ton of chemistry around how to solve problems, how to think about the customer from the very beginning and how to move fast. That, that was the moment I knew it was like, all right, the customers desperately want this, these, these public health systems. I've got the co-founders that compliment me the way I, the ways I knew I needed to be complimented in order to be successful. Uh, and I was ready to dive in. So was that early 2014? Yeah. So we started working together just casually end of 2013 and officially kicked off Zipline in February of 2014. Cool. And, and so at that point, when you sort of officially kicked it off, had you talked to a bunch of these health systems or like, I mean, it, it sounds like there was a lot of customer discovery that went into sort of identifying these core needs around delivering stuff. Exactly. So at that point, we had talked to a few of them. I knew there was a lot more to go, but there, we had talked to enough of them that the pull was there. So well, the biggest question in my mind was like supply. You know, if we're going to go build a logistics system to deliver something that doesn't exist, it's like, great, I can deliver from A to B, but there's no supply at A. Well, <laughs> you, you solve nothing. And so that was de-risk. And that in the pull was what we were, I was really looking for. I mean, off of a sketch deck within a few months, we were having meetings with presidents of countries. And that was a sign of like, whoa, okay, like this is a problem that people really want solved. And yeah, and all of my, my you know, again, I come at this with, I'm a huge skeptic. I'm, I'm the opposite of an early adopter. I love developing technology, but I love to use technology that just freaking works. And so I think that helps me a lot to kind of be that skeptic in the room, to ask those hard questions, to make sure we don't spend a bunch of time on something no one actually is going to adopt or pay for or want. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the stories I heard from the early days of Zipline was the database of death. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, this was, this was intense. We met this grad student had been studying this problem of basically just lack of access to medical supplies. And he had basically given cell phones to all these doctors and asked them to text them every time they, they knew a treatment to provide, but they didn't have the supplies to give, provide that treatment. And what, what was his goal in doing that? Like, it sounds kind of hopeless. Yeah, well, I mean, he wanted to understand how big the problem was. It's a, this, is the, this is the classic public health research problem of like, hey, there's a sense of a problem, right? Doctors are saying things. Can we put numbers to this to then put policy behind it? And, and yeah, he wanted to understand how, what, how big of a problem was this? And so over a couple of years, he had uh, these text messages and they were explaining what they were missing and you know, what the outcome was. And unfortunately for a lot of people, the outcome was death. And he's scrolling through just page after page after page of, of this spreadsheet. And uh, yeah, it was sort of this very morbid moment of just understanding the gravity and the scale of this problem. And it was a big part of motivating us to dive in. It also really helped us understand why this is, in, in so many of these countries that we started in, why this is such, this is literally a political problem. Like this raises the, to the, the level of issue that it's what the populace wants leaders to solve at like top priority for the country. And that was obviously really important because we're very disruptive, right? And in, in Silicon Valley, that is a loved word. In the world of public health and healthcare supply chains and healthcare operations, disruption is, the, is a terrible word. And and that was one of the things I was really worried about. It's like, were these health systems actually change the way they work and want to change and go through that upheaval that comes with change in order to make this, uh, in order to adopt a technology like this? And, and that really helped us understand that they would. Yeah, 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 that's powerful. And, and was that the sort of early 2014 that you had that moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that database of death, I think was right, right, you know, like just two months into this, it was 
is quite intense. And so in those early days, how did you think about product development? Did you sort of know that you were going to go with a fixed wing drone that was going to fly you know, X number of kilometers? Or what was the sort of early product development? That wasn't obvious in, at the very beginning. I think the, what became clear and clear with the customer conversations when we were, we were literally sitting with the logistics operators with maps, looking at you know, where they needed deliveries and where they had supply locations and really getting the nuts and bolts of like, okay, how would this work? How are we going to hold inventory? How many orders per day are we talking about? It really became clear that there were like two things that mattered a ton, right? It needed to be a long range platform, range, 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 and low cost. Those are the two things that were going to make this work. And when you're talking about things that fly compared to something that's, you know, like a, like a, you know, a quadcopter drone or even like an EV tall with a wing and that can hover, a fixed wing is just about five times more efficient, right? Which basically means you can either fly five times farther for the same cost or, you know, fly for five times cheaper for the same range. And, and that's a big deal. 5X is a big X factor when it comes to actually making the you know, product market fit, the economics of this work for the customer. And so it was one of those things where it was just like, it, it became clear it was going to be the only option, right? Basically, it was sort of saying, hey, in order to make this work, we're going to have to figure out how to deliver with a fixed wing vehicle, how to launch, how to recover, if we want to make a product experience that's going to work well. And to be clear, this was, it, was, it was kind of bonkers. We, I literally had one investor who was just for two years, like, you've got to do VTOL. You've got to do VTOL. You've got to do VTOL. The industry is doing vertical takeoff and landing. You've got to do it too. Why are you doing fixed wing? This is crazy. And it's like, look, we understand the customer well. That gives us the conviction to take this, you know, counter to bet. And then luckily, once we started operating, like the, the rest is history, right? It was just, no one questioned it once they saw it work, which was, which was great because, you know, obviously we could have been wrong. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I always like to think of this, these things as like, you assume you know nothing and you assume you're wrong about everything and just, Go learn as fast as you can, ideally from your customers. Don't imagine anything about your customers. That's my life lesson. The second you imagine something about your customers, you're just wrong. And if you base your design on that imagination, go off the rails and design a solution to an imaginary problem. And that's a waste of a lifetime. Right, right, right. And so w- when was that that you made that call that you're like, okay, like EVTOL, definitely not the answer? I'd say it was like mid-2014. Yeah, it was pretty quick. So sort of like a few months in. You kind of few get, months get, in, yeah. Yeah, got we had it. done some so, prototyping with VTOL. We had done some prototyping with because like one of the big questions was could you know could we actually deliver from a fixed wing in a way that people would like? And so we took some prototypes on some customer visits and hooked them over the fence of these different ways of absorbing the package. That took a little iteration. Originally, we thought it needed to look like a sleeping bag, like just pad the package like a sleeping bag kind of a stuff sack. But that would hit the ground with this kind of thud that startled everybody, and it's just really obvious that wasn't going to work. And so it kind of went from there. Like, all right, I have to do this parachute. Is that going to be economical? So a lot of testing with paper parachutes. We're like, all right, that can work and tested that with, with customers. They're like, yeah, that's fine. Great. Do that. They're like, okay, well, this, maybe this isn't as hard as we thought it was going to be. So. Hmm. so were you flying back and forth at the time? Because your, your main HQ is sort of in uh, the Bay, right? In, in Half Moon Bay? Yeah. When I think about speed too, our HQ is like a huge unlock for our speed. So the other thing we were doing those first six months of the company was to find, trying to find a headquarters. It would also be our test site. And we found a place where we could have you know, a prototyping facility, the entire company, and our test site, like all within 50 feet of each other. That was a huge thing for speed. Everything was really tightly connected. Now, obviously, we'd love to do that at an actual customer site, but given the nature of the safety concerns, what we do, that just, despite our attempts at creativity, we couldn't come up with a way to do that. But this was hugely uh, empowering. What was the attempt at creativity? Is there like a, you, you tried to like get a government to let you like prototype there and they were just like, no way, this is completely... We were looking for like, okay, maybe there's a, an area in one of these countries we could like test in that could then become our first operating base. And 
basically our, we were convinced our speed of hardware iteration was going to be too too slow just based on how hard you know just on logistics and supply chain availability of prototype components and things in a lot of these countries we're, that we're talking to yeah that was one big challenge and we were also the other big reason was we were just worried about our ability to hire and so this was kind of splitting the difference this was like this is already a good hiring filter for people who care about your mission because we were literally in the middle of a cattle ranch in the middle of nowhere you know kind of outside silicon valley uh and uh beautiful you know best views of the ocean you're ever going to have but but you know the kind of thing that a lot if if you're used to like a nice cushy google life you may, you may look at this and be like i don't know if this is for me and, and of course that was a great thing to filter out with a, with a test site like that so it was sort of the best of both worlds to consolidate the whole team in the middle of this cattle ranch and then of course just travel a lot to our customer sites yeah yeah makes a lot of sense well as you can imagine too with our customer sites like we didn't have contracts at this point right these were like in early conversations, a government contract is who we didn't know at that time. We now know it takes years to actually you know, sign on the dotted line. So we're not just doing this basically product discovery work to really understand what the product needed to be. We were also trying to sell this thing and actually get through all the, the myriad of hoops to actually get a government contract, which basically meant we had to have you know, boots on the ground a lot, build the relationships and, and get all that to happen. We're going to jump into a section about the zipline launcher and landing pad. Launcher is a contraption that Keenan calls a catapult. Picture launching a paper airplane by holding one end of a rubber band on your finger and the other end to a paper airplane with a hook on the bottom of it. You could pull the paper airplane back and then let it loose, and it would fly with a huge amount of energy transferred from the rubber band. This was how the first launcher worked, essentially. We'll hear more about the lander. And so sort of like mid-2014, you picked this architecture and... At the time, did you realize that you were going to have a giant sort of rubber band that was going to shoot this thing off and then have some sort of catcher <laughs> mechanism? Yeah, that was, that was, it was an interesting series of bets because it was the launching piece of it, the, the catapult, that I wasn't too worried about. That was sort of like, all right, that's a reasonably scalable version of that's been done in the military. The landing side, though, that's where my worry was because there was no, no one had ever come up with a scalable way to land fixed wing drones in all weather. If you have a big runway and, and the weather's not too bad, you can land a drone. If you have a giant net, you can land a drone, but it's not scalable, right? When you land a drone in a net, it's very, you know, it gets tangled and it, the turnaround time is measured in hours, not minutes <laughs> for landing that way. Basically, the way we kind of bifurcated, took, again, took a tech bet and said, okay, the main team's going to work on the plane because the plane that stays in the air and makes deliveries, that's what the customer cares about. They actually don't care that much that you land. <laughs> they, they care that you launch and deliver. And after that, you know, it's sort of up to you <laughs> as, we, as we joke. Uh, and it was like, and then in parallel created an entirely independent tech development path to, to figure out how to land these planes reliably. And, and uh, that, was, that was an adventure all by itself. And so was this sort of second half of 2014, you were experimenting with these different landing techniques? We were experimenting with landing way to the end of 2015. How to land was like the last thing we figured out how to do scalably. I kid you not, the system that we shipped for our first operations in Rwanda involved a giant bouncy castle mat made for us by, custom made for by a bouncy castle company. And two deep sea fishing poles, like off the shelf with fishing reels. That was part of the bill of materials for the landing system that we, that we launched this service with. You know, and we could, we could land every like five, 10 minutes with that system. So it was better than anything else that had been done before. But compared to what we do today, where we land every 40 seconds, you know, it, there was a, it, it was still early in that iteration process. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and so how many were there sort of a bunch of prototypes that led up to the fishing pole prototype or? Oh, yeah. Was, like, we tried. Rough- we tried everything we could think of. The, the simplest thing we tried, which I was really excited about and I was so disappointed it didn't work, was we basically tried to make a mat. This kind of, you know, we called it the, the, stunt, the stunt person mat, right? So, you know, the stunt the things some people jump off onto and it kind of 
poofs onto this huge mat. Mm-hmm. We thought that was the way to land. And there are sort of two fundamental problems with that. One is those mats are huge uh, mm. to make that, to, to get the energy, uh, uh, the, basically the impact energy on your, on your drone low enough. The mat has to be unbelievably huge and has to be very lightweight material because it turns out if the material is thick and durable, then it's sort of like belly flopping onto the water, right? It's like it really, it really smacks your drone and the, and the impact loads would just break things. And so you have to have really thin material uh, which makes it really fragile, which of course isn't good for having something outside for a long time. And th- yeah, th- there, there was a there was a moment. So one of the prototypes we made there, also made for us by a bouncy castle company, was a thirty foot tall pyramid, wow. sixty feet wide on the base, uh, so angled on the sides. So we thought we were going to like basically come in and kind of belly flop onto this onto the onto the sides of the pyramid. And we built, made this prototype, and uh, you know we we rigged up one of our launchers into a high lift to launch these plywood. Proto- you know, we called them super chickens. We made these. We, at the time, we only had a couple flying prototypes, so we definitely weren't going to risk those on a landing test, right? So we made these things out of plywood and two by fours that were the size of the plane, the way of the plane that we'd launch off a launcher on a high lift at the, the, this pyramid. And we're doing this testing, we're doing this testing, and then the wind picks up. <laughs> and it turns out, despite having you know five foot long stakes used to hold down like a party tent, you know, a giant pyramid of this shape, when the wind really picks up, has an amazing amount of lift. <laughs> And this thing just ripped the stakes out and just goes flying. I mean, like it went, you know, a couple hundred yards down, downwind and the whole company ran out of the building to try to tackle this thing and try to deflate this thing before it went too far. And, uh, yeah, needless to say, well, that was one reason we didn't like the pyramid. Uh, it also, we could not get that belly flop impact load low enough to the point where it would be reliably gentle on the aircraft. Well, a lot of where this comes from is, you know, basically landings dictate the life of an aircraft, right? You can, Design aircraft to fly if, if basically forever from a weather perspective, turbulence, storms, that's, that's very straightforward. But hard landings, that determines the life of an aircraft. And we knew we had to make these aircraft last, last a really, really long time in order to make the economics work really well uh, uh, for the customer. So, uh, yeah, so this was like, okay, how do you make it reliably gentle, right? You know, five nines reliable, that kind of thing. And that was the nut we were trying to crack. And so having this like 50G slap when you landed on this pyramid, that wasn't going to work. That was one of my favorite prototypes that I was so optimistic about solving. And the deeper we got into it, the deeper it was just, it was clearly a dead end. And we tried, we tried a half a dozen things like that, uh, things where it's like, all right, what's the simplest thing we could possibly come up with? Uh, and one of those ideas led to what, how we land today. Basically, the, the, one, of, one of the mechanical engineers had this idea of taking two pole vaulting poles, right? Uh, take, imagine a pole vaulting pole. If you ever held one, these are very stiff. I know when you watch a pole vault, it'll go, they look pretty flimsy, but like, Take a pole vaulting pole and bend it in a U-shape. So it's like a crazy tension spring. And then attach a line between the ends of the poles. Let go, you know, release the, the pole vaulting poles. So they spring up. That line goes flying straight up in the air and, and would hit the bottom of the plane and, and slide it back into a tail. That was the idea of this concept. Mm. Um, and now the reason you want the line going up really fast is when a plane's coming into land in really crazy weather, it's bouncing all over the place, right? So it's jumping up and down at the last second. But if the line goes up fast enough, it doesn't matter how much the, the drone is bouncing up and down because it'll still hit that the, the bottom of the plane and slide back into the tail hook. And so we built the prototype of this. It was terrifying, but it worked really well. Uh, it was like, it, and then it was like, all right, take a step back because we're not going to make these giant, you know, lethal mouse traps, which is basically what these <laughs> what these uh, what these uh, pole vaulting poles bent into a U shape looked like and how they felt when they went off. Like, all right, how do we make a safe version of that? This easy to reset and, and do over and over again. And that's what led us to the recovery system we ended up with. How big was the team when you were iterating over these different landing systems? Oh, uh, tiny. 
when we shipped the first version of the whole system, it was probably the team engineering team was maybe uh, 15 people. And that's everything. That's Aero and embedded and flight software and UIs and mechanical electrical, the whole thing. So we were prototyping with just a couple of folks on each of these projects. Yeah, got it. And so w- would you sort of paralyze it? Would you say, okay, we don't know which one of these landing systems is going to work, which architecture is going to work. So we're going to have a couple people work on each one. Or did you sort of like have everybody working on, you know, sort of serially? No. So, so basically the whole engineering team was focused on a plane that would stay in the sky in storms. And it was basically, as I, I for the first year, I just treated it as my hobby project. I was like, all right, I'm just going to keep experimenting. I had a couple interns helping out along the way, which was awesome as we tried these different ideas. Again, because it was sort of like, all right, hey, landing, we will figure that out. And it may not be that scalable when we launch. But like what we ha- have to have when we launch is a, is a, you know, is a drone that stays in the air, right? That's the most important thing. Uh, so the core, the core team was focused on that. So at any given time, just a few of us uh, in a very serial fashion working on, on these different prototypes, just largely to keep the resources focused on nailing the reliability of the aircraft, because that was the like, go home, you know, don't pass go. Because if we launch the service and the drones are falling out of the sky, yeah, we knew that was not gonna, we knew that was the end. That was not gonna work. So we really had to get that done. And then of course, when we, once we got to the point where we had this, the fishing pole solution with a giant tail hook that would drop down from the plane, then it was like, okay, we can launch with that. Like at least we have something we can launch with. And that's, that became the norm. It was like, all right, so we think we have a path in, in the long run to get away from that, get rid of the deployable tail hook that was a meter and a half long that would deploy a little of the plane. And yeah, so that, 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 then it was like, all right, so now this is, we, we de-risk this enough to, to, with the money we had to get the first you know, system into the field with customers, which of course was at that point our obsession because our customers wanted it. As soon as they decided they, they were going to buy it, they wanted it, right? Yep. I'll, I'll tell you one of the most motivating things that we had, which is this connection to our customers. Literally, we had a minister of health sending us pictures of people who were, had passed away, literally saying, hey, like, it's time for you guys to get this done because you know, there are people dying and these are some of the people. And there is nothing that focuses a team, rallies the team around what actually matters and what you can actually cut than that connection to a customer. It was magical for speed and focus. You know, the way I like to describe it is like, to me, a company that's not, doesn't have that connection, they're having these academic debates about, like, you know, I like this technology better, that technology and this architecture better, that architecture. And for us, it's like none of that. It's like, what matters to the customer? What, like, what is the maximum, simplest minimum thing that will get this done? Any, any academic debates, people would look at them like they were crazy of like, why does that matter? Like, we have a customer who wants this right now and needs this yesterday. Like, that's what matters. So let's focus on the right decision in that context. Yeah, yeah. And so when, when did you launch the first landing station plus delivery setup? So when we launched in Rwanda, we had a 60-foot long bouncy castle mat with two fishing poles at the end. That was our primary launch system. And then we had a prototype because it was just barely working of sort of the next, like, iter- the next iteration. The next iteration, we got rid of the fishing poles, which was great because the fishing poles was a nightmare to reset. So we had a system that was moving away from the fishing poles. And so this actually used like custom-made carbon poles with big motors instead of fishing reels so that we could like automatically reel the plane out, set the plane down precisely on a mat instead of it just whizzing out and randomly hitting us a mat that's anywhere on a 60-foot long mat. And so we, we had both of those set up when we first launched in Rwanda. The thing that we knew worked and the thing that we were trying to make work better. Yeah, and then it was probably about uh, nine months later that the next big iteration came, which actually got rid of the deployable tail hook, which was very exciting, got rid of the mats altogether. Uh, and it's what you see us operating on at scale today. And then that launch event uh, was end of 2016 that we set it up in Rwanda and, and, and launched the, the service. End of 2016. Oh, got it. And, and so it sounds like there was this, this Two years. Pretty, yeah, this like really long period of prototyping between sort of first deciding that, you know, this architecture was going to work in, in 2014 
and then actually shipping at the end of 2016. It sounds like a lot of that prototyping was around the landing system. Of course, a lot of it was around the actual aircraft. Like, yep. How many sort of prototypes do you think you built in that time? Was this like sort of tens of aircraft? Was it like 100 aircraft? Like, There were six major iterations of the aircraft in that time frame. And there are obviously many more minor iterations of those aircraft. So these were some of these iterations were focused on enabling like our avionics team to start flying and get experience as early as possible. Later iterations were about dialing in the aerodynamic performance, dialing in the, the performance in bad weather, uh, dialing in fault tolerance. Fault tolerance is one of those things that's way harder to do than I thought. <laughs> you know, early in my career, I worked on medical robotics where you talk about fail safe, right? So basically it can fail. It just can't hurt the patient. But fail operative, I'm thinking in my head, that sounds, you know, that's got to be just a little <laughs> bit harder. Uh, just, you know, a smidge, a smidge harder than that. And it turns out fail operative versus fail safe is like 10x harder. Because now you're talking about things that fail and the thing just needs to keep working as if it had, nothing had failed. And that was, a, there was a lot of iteration around that. Trying to take a lot of the fail operative design concepts have been developed in, in, in the world of aviation and aerospace. But they're literally like refrigerator size avionic systems in 747s that, that do that. And so, of course, our avionics can only weigh a couple hundred grams, right? It needs to fit in the palm of your hand. And so it's like, okay, what is the right translation here? How do we achieve the level of safety and reliability we need for the service to work in our drone size, in our our economic footprint? Do you have sort of like a a clear spec that you were like, okay, you know, we're we're doing these iterations towards this this perfect spec. You know, it it has to like fly, it has to have a parachute so that if it breaks in the air, it will gently fall to the ground. You know, the, the launcher has to work every time the catcher has to work 80% of the time. Were those clear numbers at the beginning? Or was it just sort of like, let's keep experimenting until it seems good enough? It was a little bit of both. It was a little bit of both. We, we had, we were flying as much as we possibly could on our prototype. So over those six generations, we would build more and more of each generation. So at the beginning, we'd build just two or three. And by the end, it was more like six or even 12 copies. And we were just flying them like a bunch in the air at the same time at our test site, all weather, whatever we could get, you know, whatever stressing situation we could come up with. You know, we, th- we call that flushing out the unknowns, right? But getting, th- there's all the stuff we knew to worry about and then, or we thought we should worry about. And then this was really validating that as well as flushing out things we, that surprised us. And so there were things where like, oh, we definitely have to have redundant of these systems, right? And it turns out we didn't. Uh, but other systems where it's like, oh, we didn't think we needed that. No, we missed, we're missing. And so that was really informative. We also went out and tried to learn from others as much as possible. Spent a bunch of time with the US military, uh, who is the largest operator of drones uh, in the world back then. And they had a team that was trying to really understand how they were losing drones. And they, they lose a lot. They lose, they lose a disappointing number of drones for how much those drones cost and, and for tax dollars it works reasons. But they share with us this awesome list. They had basically a you know, rank-ordered list of their failure modes. And some of them were easy for us, right? Top of their list is you know gas engine problems. We're like, okay, cool. Electric. <laughs> Check. Uh, and then they also had problems with you know how do you architect the system, right? A lot of their systems require communications to be up, and they lost a phenomenal amount of drones because of that. And so we made sure to build a system where loss of comms did not, you know, it was very unlikely to re- result in a safety incident or a loss of a drone. And so there are design principles like that that came from their to-do list that were really, really, really informative. And we use that information to not only rank order our efforts, but also try to baseline because we, 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 you know, working with the regulators in these countries, we knew what we were targeting in terms of, uh, we call it parachute landing rate. As you mentioned, we have a parachute on the aircraft, very important for speeding up development, right? So you can, you can test and iterate and, and you don't just have piles of dust at your test site. <laughs> and I guess it, it, sort of despite that, it, two and a half years seems like kind of a long time. It's it, especially because I heard that you have, have sort of never actually had a non-parachute 
failure landing in Rwanda. So, so like, you know, anytime a zip has failed in the air, it always parachutes and always sort of successfully, you know, land, lands uh, smoothly. I, I guess, could you have sort of shipped earlier or in retrospect? I would say no. Like, the, the, like getting our safety to the point where we were comfortable with it was the gate to shipping. And by the way, having a parachute landing system that is as reliable as you just said, that took a lot of that time, right? Like, I am convinced as a company, Zipline has spent more resources, more money, more team time on developing, testing, and hardening our parachute landing system than many other drone delivery startups have spent in their entire budget. Mm. It is insanely hard to make a system like that that never fails, right? And it, it's not just about not failing in theory, right? This is a parachute that today can be on an aircraft for like a couple of years without deploying. And after those couple of years of being in harsh environments, in rainstorms, that parachute still needs to just work. And we did, we did a lot of testing on that system before we launched this service because one of the main reasons is we, we, we were bracing for surprises. We met somebody um, in the safety aviation space who gave us this basically stern talking to of like, you guys are going to go do something no one else has done before. We're like, what do you mean? Nobody flies in storms near the ground. Like, that's mm. just not done, like, at all. And I'm like, well, what about medevac helicopters? And they're like, no, they stopped doing that 20 years ago. It's too dangerous. <laughs> and, you know, and we're like, oh, really? <laughs> like, no, you know, no one's done this. And, and what, this, what this guy was telling us was like, look, you know, the history of aviation, you know, when you do something new like you're about to do, you're going to flush out things nobody saw coming, right? You're going to experience things that, that no expert has seen before. It may, you know, having a parachute that's rock solid means that those, you know, those tough lessons learned, uh, you know, we safety optimize as opposed to risk for people on the ground. So we took that really seriously. So getting the aircraft to, a, to the right level of safety was, was hard. Getting the parachute to get to the level it's achieved was harder. Yeah, that's fascinating. Zooming out in a minute, uh, one, of, one of the talks you gave had this incredible chart of the number of different users. And it, it sort of initially had, you know, I think it was five users, and then it sort of expanded to like the 30 subtypes of user. When you think about your connection to users and speed, what, what sort of ideas come to mind? Well, a, a couple of things. In, in the world of tough tech like this, where you have really complicated technology, I meet just way too many founders who basically say, oh, I don't need to worry about users because I got to worry about technology for the next few years. And I might have thought that way too in starting this. Didn't happen that way for a lot of reasons, some of which was my training, some of which was my paranoia and other people on the team's paranoia and things like that. But I'm so glad we were obsessed with users from the beginning. It's sort of like the magic ingredient for a startup, right? In speed of every type, right? There's engineering speed, which is really important, but there's also all the other speed. How easy is it to fundraise? How easy is it to get customers? All these other things. And it turns out if you're really customer obsessed and you get to know real customers early in your design process, that helps you actually get real customers that are going to buy later, which of course, investors love customers, right? You tell people this, like, if you want to raise money, the easy way to do it is have like customers who are going to get on the phone with those investors and tell them how excited they are to pay for this, as well as recruit the right team members, right? The best engineers in the world, they want to work on something that's going to ship, that's going to impact people, that's going to make a big difference. Zipline's been able to hire just the best of the best across so many area, dis engineering disciplines. And so much of that has been because they've been somewhere that wasn't customer obsessed, that wasn't customer driven or customer led. And they just, they see it. They see the energy in the room. They see the focus on the customer. They see, they see the pragmatism that comes from, again, not debating the academically what's technically smarter, but like what matters to the customer and having all your product decisions and technical decisions based there just means you get to move faster and that attracts the best talent. So everything that's hard about a startup is easier when you have, when you're customer led. And of course, the biggest thing is like you, the journey of a startup is right. It's this sort of credibility march. You get a little bit of money and then you, you got to use that to like advance the company as much as you can. Like I, like I'm always telling my team members, if you're imagining what matters, you're just going to get in trouble. 
right? You've got to be not imagining it. You need to be grounded in what matters to your customers. And if you are, and use that to really focus yourself and, and focus to drive your priorities in everything you do, you can just move lightning fast. And of course, that radically de-risks the chances you make progress that gets you the next round of funding and the next customer. Right, right, right. And, and so I guess when you think about customers, there's obviously the folks who pay you. And then there's also sort of regulatory bodies and other you know, people who are sort of stakeholders in this that aren't paying you. But it, it seemed like you, you sort of wove those people's needs into the product, into the service in a pretty guided or deterministic way. Yeah. Every human being who's going to be involved in your journey can either be an accelerant or the opposite. Right? <laughs> can either, they can either put the brakes on for you or they can be an accelerant. And when you're a drone system like this is obviously the regulators, of, you know, it's, it's a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of concerns. And then, of course, you have your actual people, like for us, the people placing our orders, right? They have a whole bunch of concerns and challenges. You know, there's the customers who hire us, right? The people who actually want us to do on-demand delivery day in and day out. They have a totally different set of needs. We have our operators who run and maintain these, these aircraft. Every time we went deep in the early days, where it's like, okay, hey, I've got to, you know, just as an offhand, you know, uh, you know, one of our investors who comes from aerospace, who, who you know, uh, Paul Willard, he's like, look, I'm going to introduce you to some people in this space who like, you know, and you're just some folks on the maintenance side of the equation who we didn't know anything about aircraft maintenance and, and getting that, having that conversation about with an aircraft maintenance expert of like what that journey is for them at the beginning was like a big wake up call of like, whoa, okay. Having someone clearly explain to you, why do aircraft get maintained all the time and your car doesn't in a way that like was really tangible in the weeds all of a sudden was a wake up call of like, whoa, if we don't design for this from the beginning, just the maintenance costs, you know, would completely kill the economics of this. Mm. And so that was, you know, that put at the top of our list, we have to make something that is just trivial to maintain. In a system like this, if we didn't design from that from the beginning, it would not have been physically possible, right? Trivial to maintain means like very modular, and it means each module is independently waterproof, and each module is tested at the factory in a way that when you integrate it, that plus a pre-flight check, it just flies. You have to be very intentional with every little detail of the design to have that modularity not kill your structural efficiency or to have the electronics designed in such a way where the electronics can diagnose itself to the module level so the person in the field doesn't have to root cause and troubleshoot they just the system says hey replace my right outward wing section and you just swap that and it's done right right like right, right. If, if, it, it, and at the end of the day it's not that hard to design for those things if you do it from the beginning Right, right. It, it seems sort of obvious when you describe it this way, but th there's obviously a trade-off in complexity, right? Like if, if each of those users has five needs and you've got 30 users, suddenly you have 150, you know, this giant list of user needs. Did you have a tool for sort of slimming that down? Did you, did you have sort of subsections for different teams of, of different, you know, Google Sheets with like lists of user needs? Or did you have one giant list where you oh, yeah. try to prioritize them? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we do the classic thing, right? We have, a, we have, a, we have a, basically a feature ledger, a risk ledger, and a plan, right? And the risk ledger and the, and the feature ledger, that's where all of these details go, right? A user challenge can be a risk. It can be like, hey, export compliance says a drone that flies this far is a cruise missile. If we don't find a way around that, we can't send these anywhere outside the United States. So that's a, that's a big risk, a huge risk, a risk that like would kill the company kind of risk. So that, that works its way to the top of the risk ledger. Similarly, on the feature side, there are certain things on the regulatory side that, that, we, that we put on that list. And some of the things we put on the regulatory list, right, they were guesses. Zipline still is working with regulators to write these regulations. There, there is no, there's no established standard of regulations for what we do. So you have to work with the regulators, kind of, kind of guess where the hockey puck is going or whatever metaphor you like, and then write it down and go. And write, to be clear, you know, we were right about maybe 90% of that stuff. We were definitely wrong about at least 10% of it. We try to be as right as you can and then sort of iterate, like <laughs> deal with it with iteration. But yeah, we wrote it down. But I think that's half the story. The other half of the story is just 
hiring unbelievably great design engineers, right? Like who could actually get their head around that much complexity and come up with simple solutions. Because if you don't have unbelievably great design engineers trying to design for that many users with that much of complex needs, yeah, you'll end up with just a tarball of a system that, that like doesn't actually close and isn't easy. And then I think the last ingredient there is iteration. You got to give the team time to iterate. Like, there's just no, no, nobody can write down, can come up with a first pass design that's elegant across that much complexity. And so we spend a lot of time just iterating and iterating and iterating and iterating. And, and of course, iterate where you, where it's cheap, right? Ideally on the whiteboard, ideally at the sketch level, ideally at the, at the super chicken level, right? The plywood and prototype level where you can, you can literally iterate many times per day, even on some of these concepts. How many super chickens do you think you, you built over the, the oh, early hundreds, couple of hundreds. years? Hundreds. Hundreds, hundreds of super chickens. Wow. Oh, hundreds. Crazy. Of many different types, right? Some were specifically designed to enable launcher testing. Some were specifically designed for recovery testing. We built super chickens specifically designed to enable us to like mock out the turnaround process of a vehicle from landing to the next flight to iterate on the ergonomics of that. Because the first, you know, when we originally were like, oh, you carry an aircraft around, we just couldn't do that quickly without banging the aircraft on things, right? Like it was bad. So like, okay, so how are we going to do this? So we did a lot of iterating. I mean, hundreds of these, of these, of these prototypes. So you had like a like a super chicken factory on the farm. <laughs> oh yeah, we literally we ordered so much uh, quarter inch plywood and two by fours that we opened up like a con. What do you call it? A uh, like a what's it, uh, like a wholesale contract? A wholesale contract with the local lumber lumber yard, and they would deliver it to us every week or two, like a truckload of, of plywood <laughs> and two by fours. And and the guy would always joke because he never he never got you know, there was no building being built. He's like, "What are you guys doing with all this <laughs> building supplies?" <laughs> so, That's absurd. Wow, yeah. what a story. But you, you mentioned hiring a few times and hiring amazing people. Obviously, you know, th- there's, there's sort of hiring for engineering excellence. There's hiring for, you know, a, a particular sort of spike you mentioned, which is this, you know, kind of ability to deal with a lot of complexity. When you think about hiring for speed, what sort of ideas come to mind and, and ways of screening people? Yeah, this is, this is hard. My answer to this question is going to be complicated. So I'll try to just pick a few pieces of the puzzle, but I don't want to pretend this is easier than it is because it is hard. The first thing we found is, is, a, is, a, is a very particular value that we interview for. And I, I like to describe this value as the type of personality that is going to be fun when things are hard, right? Fun to work with when things are hard, right? And I, I like to explain this to people. Of, we've all been on, on, fa- on vacations with friends. All those vacations go off the rails at some point, right? The best vacations we've ever had are with those friends. When it goes off the rails, you have the time of your life, right? And then, of course, there's the other, t- the other, the other friend or other relationship where it goes off the rails and you need space. You need some distance from each other. Maybe you don't do any more vacations together because <laughs> like, and, and we really try to look for people in that first category, people where a startup like this is just one challenge after another. In order for this to be fun, you have to be the kind of personality where you're going to light up at the challenge. You're not going to be demoralized by it. You're not going to be discouraged by it. Those surprises that are challenges, you're not going to be, you know, annoyed that your plan went off the rails, right? You're going to be the opposite. You're going to be, you're going to light up, you're going to have fun. You're going to be the person someone actually wants to go through that adventure with. I think that's the first thing. How do you actually interview for that? Like, I guess there's sort of this intuitive sense. Is that largely it? Or or do you have any like questions that you use to? Yeah. So we, all kinds of questions and reference checks. Um, Some of the times we'll, you know, we'll probe at their, at their professional experience first, right? So what are the places where ask questions of like, you know, tell me about a time when, you know, you got surprised uh, on your last project. And like, you know, what happened? And if it's a boring surprise, it'll be like, okay, what's, what was the biggest surprise that ever happened to you in a, in a project you've been on, right? And to, then ask them to tell us about that experience, right? And you can just tell by how they answer that question, right? If they, if they light up and they were excited and then they, they ra- you could tell they rallied around the problem and got it solved, you found someone ex- you want to work with through a hard problem. 
if they're like, oh yeah, God, I was such a, I had to go home and sleep. And then I, you know, came the next morning a little less grumpy and like, you know, and I had to make a new plan and that was really annoying. And if it, if it's a negative experience for them, then you don't have the right person. Mm. So we'll I'll probe there. We'll ask references this, right? Of like, hey, you know, tell me about a time when this person was faced with a really hard, unexpected problem. What did they do? How did they treat their teammates? Based on how that went, does anybody want to work with them on another hard problem? These kinds of questions and a reference check go a long way. This is just one of the criteria we try to screen on. And there's many others. Like you mentioned, obviously, the technical things included. You're going to have to go through a lot of folks to find, find the right temperament, skill set, even life stage, right? Like the, 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 it's, you know, there's times in my life that I've had, you know, where personal health related, where I couldn't have done something like this. It's just, mm-hmm. it was just too, just takes too much commitment, too much energy, too much just hopping on a plane with no notice, this kind of thing. So you got to find the, the you know, person who's really looking for that kind of a job. It's a different kind of job. Than, uh, so that's one, re- that's one thing. Want to look for people who, who, who are inherently impatient. And that inherent impatience manifests in their work, right? So they're, that, and, and, and those inherently impatient people, the signals you look for often are, you know, basically, what do they do, right? What, what have they done? And some, sometimes it's work. Sometimes it's, it's, it's their hobbies. Sometimes it's for what they do with their family, right? I meet people who are like, yeah, they're like, you're like, wait a minute, you have the hard job and you're, you know, taking your kids to like, you know, their ski thing every weekend, all winter long. Whoa. Like you have energy and like, you're able to do more in a, in a, in a human life sort of span than, than most people can. And so we look for that. And so sometimes, it, sometimes it's the, you know, doing their hobby for fun, right? The first engineer we hired at Zipline, uh, who's still here today and our chief avionics architect, you know, this guy, he does solo sailboat racing uh, using his own autopilot. Um, oh my God. So he would make his own autopilot system to like steer the boat basically. And it was like, okay, that's what you do for fun. And his day job was building some of the most complex medical uh, diagnostic equipment in the world. And yeah. And you know, he was like, okay, this is, this is a good match here. This is someone who just gets things done, right? They're, they're not, they're not, they're not somebody who is sort of stymied by challenge. And, and, and also someone who just like lights up on like, Ooh, I want to try that. I want to do that. So that's the other big thing we look for. I think beyond that, it's, it's, uh, it's about a lot of what I'll interview for is, is like, how quickly somebody can can take an idea they had and roll it back to first principles and find a fast way to de-risk it, right? So what I mean by that is a lot of people are like, I have an idea, I'm going to prototype it, it's going to take me two weeks, and they just go, right? The, the, the person who really thrives, they say, I have an idea, and I can prototype it, and it'll take me two weeks. And they're like, oh, two weeks is a long time. How can I answer this question in less than two weeks or like two hours maybe, right? And then they're like, oh, I have an idea. And they're off to the shop, and boom, they do something, and they come back with something two hours later, and it's like, that people who are inter- always uh, kind of iterating in their head on, on what is the simpler way to do it? What's the cheaper way to do it? And how, how do you interview for that? Because you're asking folks to do that in retrospect can be hard because they're yeah. sort of like... No, we, I always do it live. I always do it live, right? So I'll always this is always a, a practical problem where I'll come in with a, a problem that's maybe real to zip line, but usually a contrived problem of like, all right, hey, here's the design problem. How do we get into it, right? And like spend a little time brainstorming and then I'll ask them a question like, okay, what's your first step here? There's, there's an order of attack that you have to take which is you have to start with trying to make the simplest possible solution to the hardest part of the problem. And then you, you work on the simplest solution to the next hardest part of the problem and so on. Most people go the other way. Most people are like, well, let me work on the easy part of the problem first. Mm. Totally wrong. Totally, totally wrong. Now, what I just described is not always linear, by the way. A lot of times you're going down, you're starting trying to find the simplest solution to the hardest part of the problem and you work your way down and you get to a dead end, you kind of have to go back to the beginning and iterate. Sure, d- double check it works on the easy parts too, and then it might not, and then you sort of... It yeah, might not, yeah. exactly. And, but, but you learned a lot that now informs the next time through it, and the next time through it, and, and then eventually you get somewhere that, where you get to the end. 
But so many people, they go right to the easy part. Okay, back to this interview example. So uh, you start by asking these questions, start with this prompt of saying, hey, we want to go, let's go through this mock problem together. Ask the question, where would you start, right? I'm looking for that, that intuition to start in the right part of the problem. And, and then I ask practically, okay, cool. So how are you going to like, how are you going to de-risk that? How are you going to learn from that? What, what's your first step? And obviously depends on the problem. Sometimes it's like, cool, I'm going to go like take a prototype to a customer. And then I'll ask like, okay, what prototype and on what time frame? And I'm looking to see, okay, they're trying to break it down. Like, hey, what's really important to like flush out with this customer interaction and this customer sort of uh, uh, test I'm going to go do? And ideally, when they're starting, that for those first steps, they're, they're coming up with ideas that are going to take them an hour to pro- prototype and an hour to get feedback on, right? If they start there, that's a great person. Don't get me wrong. Some parts of that problem, later iterations, they're going to be much slower and much more in the weeds and much more involved. But if they tackle every problem that scrappy from the beginning and that iteration, they're very likely to like get to a place where they can, where when they do have to go to the slower stages of iteration later in the iteration process, like they're on the right path at that point. Obviously, the worst kind of engineer is someone who like, you know, <laughs> where you should be iterating on an hour, they, it takes them a month. And then, of course, you know, it takes them years to get to somewhere elegant and simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it sounds like you're, you're doing sort of the same theoretical problem each time. And so you have an idea of all the possible approaches to iteration in your head. And so then when they suggest something, you can, you can sort of slot it in on like... Sometimes it's the same time. Sometimes I'm just looking for them to explain it to me, right? Like, what's their thinking of like, you know, what was, what's the smartest way to do this? And if they, if they come in and it's just totally bonkers and they can't explain it, I'm like, that, I, that makes me nervous, right? I, I think as, as a manager... In a technology development process, communication is a big part of what makes the team work. It's another element that you're interviewing for when it comes to speed. And yeah, if they, if they have something that sounds bonkers and they can't explain to you why it's a good idea and why you should at least try, you're not going to have the right person. And that's really important, right? Like some of the best engineers in the team at Zipline, they went through this interview with me. They went, we went through this mock, a mock problem where they wanted to start was not where I would have started, but they explained it to me in a way where I was like, oh shit. Yeah. Okay, that's smart. I like that, right? That, 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 that you're looking for somebody who thinks differently than you in a way that you can collaborate with. You know, diversity of thought is really important when it comes to, you know, solving problems that have been solved before. Yeah. yeah. Taking a step back, you, you mentioned that there were literally, I say, a hundred or hundreds of these chicken prototypes. There's super like, chickens. Super <laughs> chickens. Yeah. There, there's, you know, 12 copies of each of these, you know, sort of end iterations of the aircraft. There is, you know, many, many different prototypes you built. Is there any time you can think of where you sort of went too fast and or or maybe should have spent more time on design phase and then instead built something and and kind of ship it to your test suite kind of prematurely? All the time. Many, many, many examples. Many, many examples. I think part of the point of having a good test suite and having a good test site and having, you know, layers of safety mitigations in your test operations is to give you that latitude. If you're not crossing that line going too fast, on a regular basis, then you're probably not close to the line where you should be, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. You kind of need to kind of step over that line, I don't know, 20, 30% of the time. And then you know you're at that line. If you're never stepping over that line, which happens a lot in aerospace, especially, they sort of terrified of that line for a lot of reasons. If, if you're testing a huge aircraft and you crash it, it's a big freaking deal. And part of the reason, you know, we have these tiny drones and they have parachutes on them. So if we have to parachute land one of these during a test, it's not that big. Uh, and that's really powerful uh, for speed. So, so making sure you're kind of testing the line, as as my five year old now sort of redefined that term for me of what that means testing the line, but uh, it's a very similar thing, and right, and it'll drive your test ops folks uh, nuts sometimes where you're like, hey, we really didn't need to do this, uh, and, and and it's true, you got to learn from that, but at the same time, the goal is not to never cross that line, uh, the goal is to stay on that line where, stay, you know, I, I don't know, it's twenty percent over that line, um, 
the first time we built a custom aircraft, fully custom, that was like designed to go the full range, we built our first prototype of that thing. And on the first flight, we turned it to dust. In hindsight, it was just dumb. We were really excited to fly it. We, we made a test plan that was just a terrible test plan. The joke on this aircraft is we, we crashed it because we couldn't land it. It flew very well, but we took all the weight out of it because it was like, it would fly better. Uh, and it flew so well that our test pilot could not get the thing on the ground. And when we got to the edge of our test site in an area that if we crossed, it would have been dangerous. He just had to put, crash it. <laughs> and back then, we didn't have parachutes. And that was, a, that was a heartbreaking moment. That was a lot of sweat and tears into that first custom design that was supposed to be able to actually flew our full mission, full weight, full range, everything. And uh, first prototype, we had this, all these test plans planned for the next few weeks, and that was out the window. And so in, in, in the moment, did everyone sort of agree that was a failure? Or did you sort of say, you know, like, look, you know, th- this iteration speed inherently involves this type of minor tragedy? Like, you know, th- that's life? Yeah, I think the, 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 what you're getting at is tricky. It's a, it's a really tricky aspect of the, t- of the culture side of this. You have to learn from every one of these things. Every single th- time it happens, you got to learn from it. You got to learn the right things. You, le- you learn the wrong things from mistakes and, and go, off on, you know, go off on tangents you shouldn't go down or make decisions you shouldn't go down. At the same time, it's got to stay positive. How many, how many aircraft prototypes did we crash in the first two years of testing? A lot. I don't know, dozens probably. Um, you know, and, and this was a tiny team. There was like two technicians building all these things. Some of them, were, that was heartbreaking for them. They, they'd pour, you know, 100 hours of their sweat and tears into a, into a pro- prototype build. And, if that, and, then they, and then seeing that in a pile of rubble, it was, uh, it was heartbreaking. And so a lot of what we spent time doing was talking before flights. We talked a lot about the risks of flights. So nobody went to a flight being like, oh, yeah, this is definitely going to go perfectly. It was like, okay, we think we're at an acceptable risk level. When we have something go wrong, we do a retro and explicitly ask the question of like, hey, how do we need to recalibrate, right? And, and there would be debates. I saw, I'll give you one example of a debate that stuck in my mind because it reminded me of the, of the kind of conversation you have to have. This person had come from a traditional aerospace company. And at this company that this person came from, they never did test flights on Fridays. That was a policy. And he had been pushing this policy at the line. And after, after wait, 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 sorry, what, what's yeah. like the, the just quick, quick, like reason? Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that I'm, I'm sure they had some, some crashes on a Friday and they came to a conclusion that they were rushing to get it done by the end of the week. Ah, and, yeah, uh, and that cool. you shouldn't rush to do testing by the end of the week. And that like, so that that company just made the policy don't fly on Fridays. Yeah. Okay. And so this person said this out loud with a lot, really passionately of like, Hey, we, you know, we crashed on a Friday. Like, okay, now it's time for Zipline to stop testing on Fridays too. Cause you know, it, it, it legitimately, it felt like we had rushed that test. Right. The zipline way to that, which I love, someone on the, t- on the team, like live in the conversations, like going through a spreadsheet and says, we should not test on Tuesdays because <laughs> it turns out most of our crashes uh, had been on Tuesdays, not on Fridays. <laughs> and, and, it was part of, and it was part of the absurdity of it, which is like the, the lesson you want people to take there is take a beat before you test and really make sure you're not rushing to get it out the door by an you know, artificial deadline because then you waste an aircraft. That's the lesson. The lesson isn't don't test on Fridays and, and making sure that you have enough debate and you have the space to get back to first principles and really come up with the takeaway that's going to be valuable and healthy going forward. One of the things I've learned to judge a team on is sort of like, there are people who are just super positive, hmm. right? Uh, and you got to kind of pay attention on any given team. What's the ratio? Like, how, Do you have enough super positive people on that team? Do you have enough people who are just going to freaking rally no matter what? Right. No matter if you're like, it's t- you're tired and it's the middle of the night because you're trying to support something in Africa that's not working. And you're the, the whole team is at the test site at three in the morning, California time, trying to like find a way to Rube Goldberg a launcher back together so that Africa team can do it within the next two hours so that they can start flying in three hours. The, you got to have enough people who are going to just inject positivity into every one of those experiences to, to kind of literally kind of carry, carry the tide, carry the boats, right? Carry the 
provide the energy everybody else needs to really maintain that positive energy and, and move forward. Yeah, yeah. So fascinating to hear about finding great people. Let's take a step back and chat about your new detect and avoid system. Okay, so let me set the stage a little bit. So detect and avoid is, the, is, is industry jargon for basically an ability for your aircraft to detect where other aircraft are and avoid those aircraft, right? That's what detect and avoid sounds like. About a th- two-thirds of aircraft uh, in the U.S. that we encounter with a drone like this, they have a radio transponder. So we just have to listen for that and avoid them. But the other third of aircraft, they don't have a radio transponder. Like the standard today is, is what's called see and avoid, which is literally like look out the window of your plane and look for those aircraft and avoid them. Now, this is very hard for a pilot to do. Very hard. The estimates are that about, like practically speaking, if a pilot, a GA pilot, a you know, space small aircraft pilot was on a collision course with another aircraft, only about 50% of the time would they actually avoid that collision. So like, that's not great. For, for, for some reasons I won't get into super detail on, the way we operate in Rwanda and Ghana basically is overseen by air traffic controllers there. And it basically doesn't have this problem of aircraft without transponders. So that, that integration has been uh, very scalable uh, without this technology. Mm-hmm. As it became clear, we were a few years away from needing this. Uh, that's when things got uh, scary. <laughs> uh, we, we were testing with some radar companies uh, and their radars just weren't working. They weren't going to meet the needs of, of the system. So the challenging part of this from a sensing point of view is that drones don't have right of way. So said another way is that a drone needs to get the heck out of the way of an aircraft. Even if an aircraft's coming up behind you, besides you, below you, wherever it's coming, the drone just needs to get out of the way. And so basically, you need to sense with enough range all around you <laughs> in order to do that, which is really hard to do. You need to sense basically up about a kilometer of range is what you need, uh, if not more, depending if for really fast aircraft you're trying to avoid. And so a lot of companies had assumed the regulators would have right of way rules. So they give a right of way rule then if an aircraft's coming behind you, you it'll get it has to get out of your way. So you only have to look ahead of you. They're like, mm. all right, let's put some radar looking ahead. Uh, and those radar were, are so heavy and so expensive and so power consumptive. And they only give you like this little tiny sort of t- toilet paper roll, you know, view of the world that they just weren't working. That was a bit scary. We, we started testing with some of the, the companies doing this with Vision. Vision has uh, two problems here. One is if you want to see something about a kilometer away, if you've ever like tried to like, you know, shoot an airplane with your cell phone, it gets very hard to see it. You're talking about like a pixel or two, maybe three, four pixels with a really high yeah. resolution. Yeah, yeah. So we went back to the drawing board uh, and basically said, all right, we need to kick the tires on this ourselves because we couldn't find, it was just clear this wasn't going to be available as a commercial solution. Uh, we were inspired by this solution from World War One, actually. So in World War One, they, they built these systems um, you, you know those co- the hearing aids from like free electronic hearing aids are they basically these little horns you put in your ear? Mm-hmm. Back in World War I, they made giant versions of these that were like 20 feet tall that like a person would stick their ear to and they could hear aircraft way over the horizon sort of pre-radar if you want to like hear an aircraft coming. It's like, okay, could we do this with acoustics? Because microphones are great, right? Like they kind of for free get you 360. They, 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 they're very light. So the, they're very low compute load. Uh, so if we could figure this out, maybe microphones could work. And so uh, this, this started like anything at zipline started as a like, all right, fail fast at this. Let's, let's try to understand the biggest risks here. How can we get to the point where this is never going to work? There's two really hard problems to this problem. And they both come down to noise and there's two sources of noise in an aircraft. One is the, the noise you hear when you lean your like head out of a car window, right? It's called aeroacoustic noise. It's just really loud. You pull your head back in, it's quiet, put your head back out. It's really loud. That aeroacoustic noise is a big challenge, right? And if you've ever seen like a movie production, the way they solve that with a microphone is you see this big, it's, they call it a dead cat. It's not actually made from a cat, I don't believe, but they call it dead cats. It's this big, hairy thing you put over a microphone so that to filter that aeroacoustic noise. 
Uh, and obviously, it's something you could never put on the outside of an airplane, right? Because it, it rain and dust and like drag. It's just no way. So you have to solve the air acoustic noise problem. And we call the own ship noise. So basically, you got a propeller right there that's making a ton of noise. How do you hear aircraft a kilometer away when you have you know, a propeller that's like you know, a foot away? And so we spent a bunch of time looking at those two problems. Uh, and this started with one intern. This was an intern, awesome intern project. To be clear, one of the more brilliant interns you're ever going to meet. But one brilliant intern just looking at these two problems, iterating on the prototyping here. And all of a sudden, it was like, ooh, this might actually work, right? Like, we actually found some interesting solutions to solve that, those noise problems. And all of a sudden, we were detecting aircraft about a kilometer away in flight. We're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. This, and then we shifted gears from like, okay, fail fast <laughs> to, hey, all right, what? now that this is possible, what do we think this actually would take to make into a, a product that we could submit to a regulator with you know, all this confidence and, and, and understanding and certainty? Yeah, and then that slowly scaled up, starting with two engineers and then eventually scaling up to submitting this to the FAA this year. It's not approved yet, still going through the approval process, which is very exciting. But, but, but yeah, now we have something that actually uh, closes on this very difficult design a challenge using an array of microphones on the wing of the aircraft to hear and avoid uh, aircraft. As that sort of scaled up in number of engineers, how did you decide to scale it up? Like, was it sort of based on like, okay, we have enough work now, given our confidence in this general architecture to like have a couple of people explore that in more detail? Basically, yes. There's a couple of inflection points in that curve, right? So at the beginning, there's, there's very concrete problems. I'm a big fan of like, if you can break it down to a concrete problem, ideally, it's just one person on the problem, right? Uh, on each of those problems. And so that's when we went to two people and then eventually to three people. Each one of those engineers was, you know, world-class creative problem solver, really independent uh, at the design, iteration, prototyping, and sort of deep engineering understanding of what they're doing as they go. So that, that's how it goes at the beginning until you're kind of burned down that big list of open questions. And like, after we had this, hey, this could work, it was like, okay, but here's all the reasons it still couldn't work, right? All the waterproofing and manufacturability and, and, and signal to noise stuff. And after you solve the noise problem, you need to be able to figure out where the aircraft is coming. Wouldn't array work well enough for that? Uh, and so we had this list going and, and had the smallest team possible uh, working on those problems. Um, just because small teams are just, you know, the collaboration is just amazing, right? There's that value of a really elite team. And then you kind of get to the point where like, okay, now we're going to go for this. And now it's like, okay, let's actually figure out like, what does a production intent version of this hardware look like, the software look, look like? And that's a big inflection point. Now, now you need a, you know, very different sized team with a pretty different skill set than that initial team. The initial team's still involved on those hard, pro- on those core problems, but that team doesn't know how to go to, to a production intent, you know, a microphone design by themselves as an example, uh, or, or, or ship a neural net that like actually like gives you this resolution, right? There's a very big difference between like a prototype neural net and a, and a production ready, validated, fully understood and characterized, like sensible to a regulator neural net. So, um, yeah, so that, that there was a big inflection there, but it's, it's basically a constant evolution of slowly growing the team. I'm a big fan of like grow slower than you think better to be too small than to be too big. Always. It's better to have an empty seat rather than a hire you shouldn't have made always. That has that serves Zipline well enough that the team loves it, if, you, if that makes sense. In the early days, some people were like, what are you doing? Why aren't we hiring this kind of thing? But because the, the, the quality of the engineering and more importantly, the quality of the teammates, that it's just so much fun to work with a team like that. Yep. Um, yeah. So basically slowly grow and slowly start solving more and more problems. And then you, again, it's that moment where it's like, all right, production intent. What does that team look like? How do we do that as fast as possible? And that, that's where the team you know, goes through a pretty big step size. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I, I, have you ever shadowed a teammate and helped them speed something up? Yeah, all the time. And, I, and I, I'm always taking the folks who are really good at that at moving fast and, and making sure that they, they give opportunities for people who haven't mastered that. Everybody sort of has 
I think I have it too. We all at just different degrees of sort of psychological impediment to moving quickly. I'd say the, the theme is reflection. And this is one of the things that I, that I train all the really the new grads at Zipline to do is every single day, you have to carve out an hour to reflect, right? Don't do any work. Just reflect on what I learned yesterday. How should that change my plan tomorrow? Am I ready for what I want to do in two days in terms of I need to order parts or get ready for that? What have I learned from the last two weeks? Like just every day, take that time to reflect on basically how to move faster, right? Yeah, how do we, you know, we, we don't use the word for how to move faster. We always think about how to move. How can I do, how can I iterate more quickly? How can I learn more quickly? Or, uh, how can I, you know, basically how, how do I get to a, that elegant, uh, simple design I'm proud of? How do I get to that? Uh, what's my fastest path to that? And taking that step back is really important for a lot of folks. To me, the seasoned folks are doing this while they're working all the time, right? Constantly. And, and you can, like, you'll just see it. They'll be working and all of a sudden they'll just be like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, okay, new, new, new plan. You know, until you really have that muscle down, which is hard, right? Especially if you're working on hard things, it can be mentally all consuming, right? If you're working on some really hard analysis or a really tricky to build prototype, like you can't be thinking about other things because you'll hurt yourself if you're building a proto on, or, or if you're, um, you know, that, that analysis is just takes all of your brain power. So that, 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 that's my main advice to people starting out. And once they're confident they're doing it throughout the day, then, okay, fine, let that hour go. But until you're confident you're doing it throughout the day, make sure you create that hour. Most people, if they do that, they'll come up with a hundred ways to do something better than they, their idea from yesterday. Yeah. And then last question, what's one habit you have personally around moving fast? That's a great question. I, I think my biggest habit is just, just constantly obsessed about the customer and try to, try to make sure that every little decision that I'm making is based there. That can be really, really powerful as you're working on any given problem where it's like, you know, especially as you, you know, my role as a lead, you know, I, I've got to make sure the team is obsessed with the right things, right? And, you know, you and I have talked about how there's gazillions of things to worry about from a design perspective. And you have to be thinking about those, but you also need to know what is most important. You need to know what is like that thing that matters the, the most. And like we talked about for, for our platform, right? Long range at low cost. That was the most important thing. And there were other things that mattered too. And you couldn't lose sight of all of those. But coming back to those things that mattered most and, and really using those to drive, like, like I talked about, start the design with like, what is the simplest solution to that hard problem that matters most to the customer? In that case, range uh, at low cost and let everything else fall from that. That has served me really well in every project we've been involved in. We really take that time to try to bubble up what really matters the most. Yeah. 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 And so I guess, I guess it's sort of like a habit of thought around this type of problem. Like whenever you're thinking about this high level strategy, just yeah. trying to prioritize these and trying to rank these in your mind. Yeah. And I will say, as we've grown, there's a, there's a habit that's kind of like the, the corollary to something we talked about earlier around be, making sure the team is connected to the customer. So they're customer obsessed and they're thinking. As we've grown, that's harder and harder. And so one of the habits I have now is like just eyes and ears open all the time. Anytime there's an academic debate going on in the engineering team, that is a harbinger of a disconnect to the customer that is, that is a problem. Go in there, figure out how to get them connected and get them connected and make sure that they understand the importance of that connection using that as a really live example for them of like, hey, you were debating this, this academic sort of level trade up on this design. That's not how we do it at Zipline. You need to ground it in what matters to the customer if at all possible and it's almost always possible yeah 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 Yeah. in terms of grounding it you mentioned this one story a while ago where there was a doctor sending you photos of people who had passed away did you sort of uh, kind of put those in like the i don't know did you email them out to the company not initially not initially uh but we we back then we were small and like we started bringing them up in our all hands not not over and over because like you know like i found that very emotionally hard to deal with and it was yeah 
it, it was it was a very tricky tension between trying to really calibrate to when we're ready to ship this thing. Mm. And it was one of those things that we just knew, like if we ship too late, we fail as a company, we fail for our customers. If we ship too early, we fail for this company, we fail for our customers. And trying to find that, create the safe space for that balance and have the debate for that was was tricky. And I, I wanted to, I want the team to be motivated by what matters to our customers and that, you know, knowing the customer wanted it that badly was just intrinsic motivation for all of us to like, just, you know, come to work with a pep in our step and like, you know, just like really kind of rewind to get through this. But I knew if it went too far, it'd be demoralizing and, and, and people would just get stressed out, right? Like when you hire great people and you're mission oriented like this and you're obsessed with what you're doing, part of the fun of a manager is, is like, you know, reminding people to take vacations and things because they're so into it. They're not thinking about that at all. And, and, uh, yeah, it makes it a lot of fun. That definitely pushed the other way. Awesome, Keenan. Thanks for coming on the show. Great chatting today. Yeah, absolutely. It was great speaking with you. In 2021, Zipline raised $250 million at a $2.75 billion valuation. They've saved tens of thousands of lives, now delivered medical supplies to tens of millions of people across five countries. In Rwanda, they now deliver 75% of blood deliveries outside the capital. And they're just scratching the surface. In the coming decade, expect Zipline to vastly improve global medical infrastructure and save millions of lives. If you'd like to learn more about working with Keenan and the team, reach out at flyzipline.com slash careers. Special thanks to my team at 50 Years and all the founders working on the world's most important problems. I'm Peregrine Badger, and you've been listening to Speed.